Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's cold-blooded in a way that very, very few crimes are doing. This was very, very specific hunting of children and then murdering them for pleasure. Hello, my name is Simon Toyne and I kill people for a living. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not a dangerous psychopath. I'm actually a fairly harmless crime writer and my murderous thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood, and this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind-the-scenes insights, and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. This is the ninth podcast in the series, so hopefully by now you've watched the television episode, and if not, I suggest you tune into that first and then have a listen to the podcast. That way you'll avoid any spoilers and find out about the story in the same way that I did. In this episode, I'm joined by the best-selling thriller-writing juggernaut that is Simon Koenig. He is a prolific writer with 16 full-length novels on his CV, and in this episode he took me to Wokingham, close to where he was brought up and and actually still lives, um, which is to the west of London. It was here in 1984 that a young boy would simply vanish, never to be seen or heard from again. And in a way, it's the most chilling of all the crimes I've explored on this series. The simple here one minute, gone the next is just so immediate, so terrifying for this poor family. It's the stuff of nightmares. When I met Simon, he had already warned me that this story would go to some pretty dark places, and he wasn't wrong because the twists and turns of this particular episode and the people involved took us to some places which were about as depraved and shocking as anything I've come across either on this series or ever. But before we get into it, let's learn a bit more about Simon. I've been um, writing books uh, of one sort or another, or stories of one sort or another, since I was a tiny kid, almost as soon as I could pick up a pen. But I, I think, for me, the most important thing is to treat it always as a job. Um, because if you kind of just sort of sit there and wait for inspiration, wait for the sort of mood to take you, I mean, you could be waiting a hell of a long time, and I can't afford to do that. I have to write a book a year, um, and the best incentive to get me going is the fact that if I don't do it, I don't get paid and my kids don't get fed. So um, I tend to always want to get 2,000 words a day done. 
So 10,000 words a week. I mean, it, it veers a little bit down or up from that sometimes. But in general, a good writing day for me is 2,000 words. And I won't like leave my desk until I've got at least close to that. And only if things are going disastrously wrong, which sometimes happen, you have to kind of rip up 50 pages and think this is rubbish and I've got to go back over it. Only then do I tend to work at the weekends if, I, if, if the time constraints get too much. So I, I'll, I'll do it Saturday and Sunday, but I kind of figure it, I look at it like uh, overtime I'd rather not be doing. So it's pretty much a Monday to Friday thing for me, 10,000 words a week. I always follow the same procedure. So I have the idea, I spend weeks walking round and round and round trying to develop the idea in my head, talking to myself, probably looking slightly strange to passers by. And then I slowly put everything down on paper. So I write a, a full structured plan, could be up to sort of 40 pages long, which goes by, which basically tells me chapter by chapter exactly what's going to happen. And then I'll, I'll write the book on top of that. I'll, 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 with the, what the plan exactly ready, I'll, I'll write the story. Otherwise, there's too much risk of, of kind of going off on tangents. And my books rely very heavily on being very fast paced and have lots of twists and turns. And I think you can't be too spontaneous with that. You've got to have it planned. And I think probably the most important thing of all is like you've got to be patient. Um, if you even if you think you've written an absolute masterpiece. It may take quite a long time for someone to, to notice that and you've got to kind of just keep persevering, sending the book to, to agents, to publishers, um, just keep pushing it. But, you know, keep the faith and know that, you know, you can end up with a lot of rejections. I had a total of 300 rejection letters for two books uh, and that was pretty much every publisher and agent in the country rejecting me twice and I somehow still kept going. I don't know what they were trying to tell me but I kept going and obviously it, it worked out so that's what I think you know you just gotta it's a long game you gotta look at it as a long game and you've just gotta be very very determined if, if you want to succeed in it I think. Simon's career as a writer is a lesson in the triumph of persistence. As he explained, he didn't just write a book and then land a publishing deal, uh, very few people do. He had to work at it and work hard. He had to fail and fail better until he finally wrote a story that someone wanted to publish. I consider writing to be as much as a craft, as an art form, and as such, the more you practice, the better you get. Unfortunately, writing is also one of those weird things where the mastery of it seems to remain forever elusive. In my own experience, every book I write feels just as hard, if not harder, than the ones I've written before. I'm pretty sure I am getting better as a writer, but it sure doesn't feel that way when I'm struggling to get the words down every single day. I've also realised that whenever I finish a book, all I've really learned to do in the writing of it is figure out how to write that specific book. Which means when I start a new one, I have to figure it all out again from scratch, just like I did for my very first one. My first published book, Sanctus, was actually the first book I ever wrote, which might on the surface seem to prove the lie about what I just said about having to work hard at your craft. But I did write that book after 20 years of working in television, where I'd built a career on telling stories professionally. So I already had 20 years of experience of expressing ideas on the page in the form of outlines and scripts before I ever wrote a novel. I'd also read a lot. Uh, and had 20 years of being edited and editing myself, of crafting a story until there was no fat left on it and it grabbed the attention and clung on to the reader or viewer for dear life. I was also 39 when I started writing that book, 
So I'd been alive for nearly 40 years and had, therefore, 40 years of living to draw on, 40 years of reading stories, reading books, watching TV shows, films, listening to music, looking at art, and, you know, just talking to people, all of which helped form a point of view and a singular voice, which I think is something that lies at the heart of any form of good storytelling. So, in conclusion, becoming a writer is a combination of getting proficient at writing through practice, having something to say, and developing a unique way of saying it. But most of all, it's probably about getting the lucky break so that your work is seen by the right person on the right day, which is sounds simple but is probably the hardest thing and is the one thing you have no control over. Although, as a wise man once said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And if you can crack it, as Simon explains, it is a brilliant way to spend your time. I think the reason I write books rather than any other kind of, you know, working as a journalist or doing any other kind of stories is because um, I it gives you a kind of flexibility and freedom that you don't get anywhere else. I mean, the, the whole book, the whole story is all mine. I mean, I create the whole idea, the, the, um, the plot, the, the, the characters, and no one can help, which obviously gives you a little bit of pressure to it. But at the same time, it gives a huge amount of satisfaction to be like entirely in charge of, of your project, especially if you're a bit of a control freak like me. So it, it kind of, it, for me, it, it works really, really well. It's a massively satisfying process when you're finished. And also, you know, it, it gives me sort of flexibility in my lifestyle as well, because, you know, I finish a book and then I got a little bit of a rest and do my, my own thing. And, and of course, it pays reasonably well. So, you know, <laughs> why, why wouldn't I do it? <laughs> but for all the benefits, being a crime writer often requires you to confront the very darkest facets of human behaviour. And the story Simon Koenig wanted to tell me features a gang of men who have to be amongst the very worst criminals I have ever heard of. We started our journey in Wokingham with the story of the disappearance of a young boy called Mark Tildesley. And as we walked around that pretty little old-fashioned English market town on a sunny summer's day, Simon told me how Mark used to ride around it on his bike and how he was known by everyone. And as we walked along, it did seem impossible to imagine how anything dark or sinister could happen there. But it did. Mark Tildesley disappeared one evening in 1984, after he'd ridden away from home on his bike to visit the local travelling fair which had pitched up on the far side of town. He was reported missing a couple of hours after he failed to return home, and a search was carried out immediately that went on through the night and into the following days. The police quickly found his bike, but there was no sign of Mark. He had simply vanished. Ramsey Smith, a journalist who wrote a book about the case, fills in some more detail about what happened next. The police investigation was as intensive as it possibly could be. Uh, within a week of Mark uh, going missing, he appeared on uh, Crime Watch. The story was featuring on the national television news. Uh, there were numerous lines of inquiry being uh, pursued by uh, uniformed police, but also um, detectives. Uh, there were a number of sightings of Mark on the evening that he disappeared. The most notable one being from one woman who saw him in the centre of town uh, being led along the road by someone she described as the stooping man. The stooping man uh, was a, a, an image that haunted uh, 
the investigation for some time. It was of a dishevelled, uh, late middle-aged man, uh, short in stature but wiry, uh, wearing a long, dirty raincoat and carrying a, a shopping bag, a plastic shopping bag. The intensive nature of the inquiry continued for several weeks, but having exhausted all opportunities to pursue leads that were evident at the time, sadly the police did not have any news, good or bad, to give to Mark's parents. But in this story, the disappearance of Mark Tildesley was just the beginning. Other boys had disappeared too. A young boy called Jason Swift vanished after sending a postcard home saying he was heading to the seaside. His body was later found in a shallow grave in farmland in Essex, miles away from where he'd last been seen. Then another boy called Barry Lewis also disappeared, and his body too was found close to Jason Swift's. Both had been drugged and strangled. As a result of these discoveries and the evidence the police managed to gather from the remains, they started to believe that they were looking for not one suspect, but several, and began working on the theory that the disappearances were linked to an organised paedophile ring run by a man called Sidney Cook. Sidney Cook was a known sex offender who had dropped off the radar by travelling around the country. It turned out that one of the ways he accomplished this was by running a test your strength stand for kids on a travelling fair the same fair that had been visiting Wokingham when Mark Tildesley disappeared. Sidney Cook was a, a vicious, angry uh, paedophile who uh, spared no thought for his victims at all. He was also sneaky, he knew how to work the police system, and he was a very, very dangerous man and unquestionably uh, a ringleader uh, within the paedophile uh, community. Cook always maintained that he wasn't at the fair on the night Mark Tilsley disappeared, but another member of the paedophile ring later said that he was. He told police that Cook lured Mark to the fair with a 50p bag of sweets and the promise that he would pay for him to ride on the dodgems. Now, if this was a book, that would be it, case solved. But real life is far more complex than fiction, and often much less neat. Cook was never prosecuted for Mark Tildesley's murder, because by the time this evidence came to light of his involvement, he was already serving 19 years for the manslaughter of Jason Swift. So the final conclusions to this case are very complex. Numerous men were ultimately found guilty for a range of assaults, some were charged with some of the crimes and others with just one offence. Because the conspiracy aspects of the case clouded the waters. The fact that this was a group of men working together made it incredibly hard to prosecute them in the traditional way. It was almost impossible, for example, for lawyers or police to establish who it was who instigated the murders, or indeed who might have strangled the victims. Three years after the disappearance of Jason Swift, the gang were committed for trial uh, over his death. Initially, the gang were charged with Jason Swift's murder. 
but the wisdom of the uh, Crown Prosecution Service at the time was that securing murder convictions uh, was going to be a difficult route for them to follow. The police were absolutely furious at this decision. They felt that these people were literally getting away with murder. David Bright explains what challenges the police faced. You're playing one against the other, really. They do what they did, and they're evil, evil people. We couldn't prove who was doing what to Jason when Jason breathed his last. So manslaughter was the charge as opposed to murder. Sidney Cook was clearly identified as the ringleader and was jailed for 19 years. The others were jailed uh, for a, a variety of jail prison terms from 16 years to 13 and a half years. But further investigations followed on and Bailey then admitted being involved in the murder of Barry Lewis. So that gave the other three, I don't know quite know how they worked this out, the thought that Bailey must have been the ringleader. So they appealed against their sentences and got reductions. Cook was actually released in 1998. I believe that he's the ringleader. He was the he ringleader. Was the he was one. named as a ringleader in the trial of Leslie Bailey for the murder of Mark Tilsey. He was named as a ringleader who had killed Mark Tilsey. In the end, actually, Sidney Cook was, was returned to jail. He was charged with rapes of children going back to the 1970s and sentenced to two life sentences. And he's still, he's still there, age 90 now. So he's still in prison. Still he's alive. Still, still, he's in still prison. alive in prison. And, um, and Leslie Bailey was murdered in prison by two fellow prisoners. Robert Oliver is still free. The particular thing with this case, though, that has, has really puzzled me is why these offenders aren't known in the same way that other notorious killers are. The name Sidney Cook might mean something to crime experts, but I don't think most people would instantly know either the name or the level of his crimes, and even fewer would be able to pick him out of a lineup. And yet the crimes he committed or caused to be committed, put him right up there with the worst offenders we've talked about in this series, if not the very worst. So I wonder, is it because of the confusing nature of the convictions, with so many names and so many trials and incidents, that the scale never quite sunk in to the British consciousness? Or is it because these crimes happened in the 70s and into the 80s, way before the internet elevated hate-filled hysteria regarding paedophiles in particular to the present heights? Or maybe it's because the crimes are just so vile that we prefer not to be reminded of them and would rather leave them in the past. Whatever the reason, there is no doubt in my mind that evil exists in this world. And it was there, burning darkly in the person of Sidney Cook. Throughout it all, he never once showed any sense of guilt for his crimes. And he refused to engage in any form of rehabilitation sessions in prison. Here was a man who had committed heinous crimes, crimes that had destroyed and targeted so many innocent lives. And yet, he never showed the slightest hint of remorse. And that, to me, is evil. This podcast is the accompaniment to the TV series Written in Blood, which airs on Sunday nights on CBS Reality at 10pm. 
please feel free to tweet me any comments or questions you have at Simon Toyne, all lowercase, all one word, using the hashtag written in blood. Or contact me on my Facebook author page, which is easy to find because there's only one Simon Toyne author out there. And it's always great to hear from you. Next week, I visit Manchester with crime writer Howard Linsky to investigate one of the most infamous killing sprees in British history. That podcast will be live following the program, or you can hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. That's it from me, so thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.